time for a visit from Dr. Bernice Shafarik from Shafarik Dental in Columbia, who spent a lot of time in the last couple of years talking about the old days of dentistry. Today, she looks in a crystal ball at the future of dentistry and what's on the horizon. Bernice, good morning. Thanks for stopping by again today. What inspired you to talk about the future of dentistry? Good morning, Wayne. Um, as you know, and you once commented, I do like to research before I go ahead on the radio, and that's because I don't want to really just be giving my opinions. I want to make sure they're supported by scientific evidence. So one of the things that um, came first came out in 2000, there was a Surgeon General's report on the state of oral health, and at that time they made predictions about what would be happening in the area of dentistry and oral health, and the projection was that in 2020 there would be an additional report. So I think we have mentioned in the past on the air that the bottom line of the Surgeon General's report in 2000 was that oral health is vital to your general health and that we need to pay more attention to it. In 2020, when the report was supposed to come out, there was the COVID outbreak. So it was delayed until 2021. And it's a very extensive report, and it gives us lots of information about where we are and where we're going. Well, you certainly have seen changes in your 30-plus years in dentistry, too. And just out of the blue, what would be maybe one or two of the most important changes that have been made in those years And can we take that as a springboard to looking ahead to see what might be coming up down the road? Sure. You know, there's just so many that one example is filling materials. When I was in dental school in 1980 through 84, amalgam was still, you know, the silver fillings was still the treatment of choice most of the time. Then we developed the bonded materials, the composite resins, and that's become treatment of choice largely because the silver fillings contained mercury. And even though there's no hard evidence that that was harmful to the humans that had the fillings, it was definitely an issue with the environment. So that made everybody work towards trying to change the materials so we didn't have something that was so damaging to the environment. So that's just one area that has definitely changed. And another area that is really booming is digital imaging. So in the past, and when I was in dental school, we were taught when we wanted to make a crown or a cap to replace the tooth structure, we would take a tray and put this goopy material in your mouth and it we, it would sit there in your mouth for three or four minutes until it hardened, and then we would send that off to the lab. Since 2010, I've had a digital scanner in my office. So the advantage of that is no goopy stuff. Basically, it's like a camera, and you take this um, scanner, it's called, and you take pictures, basically, of everything in the mouth. So the huge advantage for the patient with that is that they no longer have to have that goopy stuff in their mouth for four minutes. There are many more advantages for me because I don't have to be sending a material through the mail for several days, and then the lab pours it up, and then we see what everything really looks like. With digital imaging, I can immediately see, 
Have I taken enough tooth structure away to be able to build porcelain that looks natural and functions well and won't crack? I can tell that immediately on the digital scanner because it shows me that information. So that's been a huge advantage. As we look to what's on the horizon, what's the potential for personalized oral health? So that's an area that uh, my patients know. I'll often go into dreamland and think about how we really don't personalize or individualize medicine or oral health. For example, somebody um, gets an infection and we prescribe the same dose of antibiotic for everybody for the same time term. Now, that just doesn't really make sense to me because I know there's huge variations between people and how they react to medications and which bacteria is causing the problem. But we have traditionally just based things on a group model. So, for example, your dentist says you have gum infection and you go off to the store and there's all these products that say they fight bacteria and you pick one that appeals to you or you ask your dentist which one is best, but it's really not personalized or customized. An area where I think it's really starting to go in that direction is cancer treatments just because the consequences of cancer are just so terrible that there are some areas where they're starting to use genetics to be able to look at the cell level, so the tiniest unit, and see what medications can impact that cell that's growing. So when you have a cancer, you have cells that are rapidly replicating themselves. So that's been an area that people can do that. But I would love to stop replacing tooth structure with filling materials and actually have teeth be able to grow back to what they once were. I would love to do something to try to get people to regrow bone where they've lost bone or gum tissue. That would be ideal in my mind because it would be patient-specific. So if we could use the patient's own genetic potential to make these things happen, it would be very individualized and personalized and, uh, and appropriate. How do you target and focus pharmaceuticals, Bernice? So a lot of the diseases within the mouth are due to organisms that live in our mouths, and that's what's called the microbiome. So that encompasses um, viruses, bacteria, um, one-celled organisms, anything that can cause an infection in the mouth. And it's been discovered that they're the only area of the body that has more um, of these organisms is the gut. And the relationship there is sometimes organisms from your gut can move up into the oral cavity and mess up the lifestyle and change some of the organisms in your mouth to make them even more dangerous. So a huge area of research has been to identify what organisms there are in this microbiome 
and that can be very specific to each person. So if we could target how we can give a medication that affects your particular area of problems in your mouth, then that would be a very targeted way to help you as an individual be healthier. So that's very attractive to me instead of the one-size-fits-all that you have this infection, so we'll just give you amoxicillin because that's what we give to everybody. What's the future of tooth, bone, and gum replacement? So that's another area that gets me very excited (laughs) that we could actually get teeth to regrow because right now the best we can do are, well, we're getting a little bit better about the materials, but we have materials that are what we call biocompatible. So you put a filling material in the tooth and the tooth doesn't reject it and we've advanced to where we can make it look pretty similar to your natural tooth structure. We've advanced to where the wear and tear of it can be similar to the wear and tear of your natural teeth so that it doesn't break or leak too early. What we don't have yet is the ability to inspire your tooth to regrow its own enamel and dentin. So those are things that are coming down the pipeline. And a lot of that has to do with all of the human genome research. So basically, at the cell level, people are finding out what genes are responsible for what conditions. So it's pretty rare to have a one gene, one disease situation. There are some diseases that are the result of just one thing like that. But most of our most serious diseases are due to a whole complex of different genes and their interaction with the environment and things like that. So um, we need to be able to customize that per patient if we want to treat people in an ideal fashion. I know a fair amount of adults who have a crown for one reason or another. I have one thanks to a baseball bat in Hollywood, California. But what's the future of customized crowns? So right now um, you have two choices. There is the technology that will do what, what we can call a crown in a day. So you go into a dental office and they have this scanning machine that you prepare the tooth for the crown, Pictures are taken, like I talked about before, digitally. You get digital information that shows exactly what that looks like in your mouth. And then there is a milling machine that takes a block of ceramic material and cuts it back to fit into that place in your mouth. The other way to do that, which I still prefer at this stage, is to send that information to a laboratory and have a laboratory technician recreate what looks like it matches your tooth best. And that can can be a more additive function. So instead of cutting something back, sculpting it back to look like a tooth, you would build it up to where it looks like a tooth. So what we really could use is a more customized situation where using that 
digital technology, a tooth could be rebuilt to match what was once there. So that's a customized crown. I still would love to see us able to have the teeth regrow because every time we make something that we have to put in there, it has to be able to fit in between those two teeth. So sometimes people will have a situation where because of their anatomy and the way their teeth are formed and their bone, there's a space down near the gum tissue, and they'll complain that, oh, food gets caught, and that's a problem area for me. If you've got something to just regrow there, you wouldn't have to worry about taking it out and putting it in. And I'll bet, Bernice, that the future of dentistry includes some pretty high-tech terms of diagnosis, able to maybe spot problems earlier than we do now and we have in the past? So that that's another dream, that instead of waiting until you can see clear signs of damage, so when we have decay in a tooth, what that means is the minerals in the tooth start to break down, and that's called cavitation. That's where cavities comes from. So right now, most of our imaging, it's hard for us to see that until it actually shows up on an X-ray. And then you need enough damage to the tooth that you can see that on an X-ray. So potentially, we need to develop ways to see that process way earlier so that we could reverse that. So people who have access to good dental care and they come into a dentist and, you know, ideally I think you see the same person and that person watches what's happening in your mouth and knows your diet and your tendency to get decay, so they're able to say, you know what, you really should be using, you know, fluoride trays or do something like that to help prevent the problem because we've already identified that you seem to get decay more frequently. What would be ideal, especially for the people who don't have good access to dental care, is if we had a method to see this process happening earlier. So, for example, if in the school system we had an image machine that could detect those changes early and they could screen a whole population of students and see cavities before they became cavities. And then they could say, you know, this group of kids needs to come in for fluoride treatments, for example. You know, that would be a way to really attack the problem individually and way ahead of time. Bernice, as we look ahead to the future of dentistry, how do we get there? I mean, how do these improvements get made? So a huge issue that I think came out during COVID is we need to have quick access to very accurate information. And then we need to be able to make decisions and act upon it and implement that as quickly as possible. So that means having large numbers to look at. So I sometimes have someone come into my office and they'll say, well, you know, you recommended a crown, but 
my friend had a crown and it didn't work. So they're looking at crowns are not successful based on one person and not really knowing what that one person's situation is. So much more ideal is to be able to look at a million people who have ended up with crowns and which ones were successful and what about those people made their crowns successful so that we could individualize by looking at very large populations. Now, in order to do that accurately, you know, we're all gathering information in our individual dental offices, but there's no centralized electronic record. So they've pushed that much more in medicine to be able to have a centralized bank of information to help do so many things. One, identify, you know, which areas of research are important. You know, where should we put the money? You know, where should we look into things that are affecting a large amount of the population? Electronic health records are a difficult issue in dentistry. I think there's the statistics are now about 75% of the dental offices are putting all of their information into a computer, and dental schools are doing the same thing but it's not a centralized program, so it can't transfer. So if I send my information in, it's in a different format than some other dental office's information. And then information like insurance records, you know, that's a good way to be able to tell what works and what doesn't work because if things are repeated, then, you know, that wasn't a success and you had to do that procedure too early. But that's a huge amount of data, but that would be the way to really help us make some good decisions about what the best treatment is for each individual patient. And what's the future, as you see it, of imaging? So that's a little bit about what we talked about. We have the digital scanners, and we basically have x-rays in dentistry. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. You know, we've made a huge amount of progress in decreasing the amount of radiation. But if we had imaging that didn't need radiation, things like, you know, ultrasonic or what they call fluorescent imaging, where you could look at light waves, and and those things are being looked at. So basically, if you had a wand with a light wave and you waved it over the tooth, that it would be able to tell you whether or not that process of breakdown that leads to decay and fillings, if that has started to happen. That's the kind of uh, equipment we need to be able to catch things earlier and be more, more effective. I think you touched on some of this a moment ago, but will the way data is interpreted and essentially transmitted and collected be different 10 years, 20 years down the road than it is now? Because it certainly is different now than it was 20 years ago. You know, that's true, but right now it's still not as focused as I would like it. So when you look out there in the world, there's a whole lot of information, an overwhelming amount of information. I mean, even things like people who monitor their sleep patterns, that's data that ends up in their mobile phone that potentially can be 
accessed. So, of course, you know, there's ethical and privacy issues, but from a public health viewpoint, if you knew about, um, you know, 100 million people's sleep pattern, then we might be able to help people to sleep better if we could identify certain common characteristics. So that's where I think artificial intelligence comes into play because when you have that much data, it becomes difficult to analyze all of that. But we have the means to, you know, let the computers take a look at that as long as we put in the right questions, for example. And artificial intelligence as a concept can be a little bit scary, but I just look at it as I put in the questions, does this person have A, B, and C, and the computer goes through, and through artificial intelligence they can say, yeah, these people have this component, and you said that would lead to this, so here's the people that seem to have that problem that you indicated. So that's a way to have computers help us analyze a huge amount of data that's very difficult for one individual to use. Another great thing that's happened since 2005, there are what are called practice-based research networks. So these are individual dental offices that have a relationship with the research people, and they're giving their input so that, you know, they can be saying, you know, I'm seeing a trend where more people you know, seem to be missing teeth from birth than I've seen in the past. So once that information gets in there, then a research facility can say, oh, well, let me ask all my other practice-based networks if they're seeing the same thing. And that's a way for the knowledge that's hard to imitate of an individual practitioner meeting with an individual patient, but we could then take some of that information and try to enlarge it to good treatment. Talked about a number of aspects about what to look forward to in the field of dentistry, and we're talking about how you get there. And one way to do that, Bernice, is through data interpretation and implementation. That's true. And um, what we have found through COVID is that we need to up our game when it comes to looking at results of data and then implementing them. So what that means is we identify a disease, we quickly try to find some medications that can help that disease, but then we have to figure out how to put them out there so they're available to the doctors who need to treat the patients. That's what we mean by implementation. Now, there's a word that's been thrown around for a while called the human genome. If there were multiple choice, I probably would have a hard time describing what it is. So I will let you describe what the human genome is, how we study it, why we study it at the cell level. So the reason that we study it basically in my mind is because it is what individualizes us. And if our goal in medicine is to create targeted cures for your particular problem, there's no better place to start than at the cellular level. So that's like the smallest unit 
that we can look at, and there's a genetic code that luckily was deciphered that's called the human genome. So that's everything about this code that makes us be a human. So the human genome is different from the zebra genome. So right away, we know that. But, and so DNA is hard to change. That's why, you know, after a fire, they'll identify a body sometimes by the genetic code. I mean, it's given us a great way. And people, I heard during the COVID epidemic, people would say it's going to change my DNA. I mean, if you think about it, we're identifying, you know, skeletons, whether they were human or not, from, you know, lots and lots of years ago. We could not do that if DNA changed that easily. So DNA is this code. So if you think about it as a line with a ton of different colored Legos. When we want something to be be what we call transcribed, then little blocks match those colors, and they can be what we call messenger RNA. So they just match that information, and then the next step is you can create, and I'm simplifying things, but you can create different proteins from that. So, and what, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead and ask. Uh, what's the future of the study of the oral microbiome? I'm throwing some words out there I don't use very often. So um, the oral microbiome is all of the organisms that are in our mouth. And what we've discovered is the only place in the body where there are more organisms, microorganisms, so we're talking about real tiny stuff like bacteria and viruses and protozoa and fungi and different things like that, the only place there's more is in the gut. So the mouth carries a whole lot of those organisms. So identifying those organisms has led us to a lot of really interesting research. So there's a, um, an organism that's associated with gum infection, periodontal disease, and what these large studies have found is that same organism seems to be associated with dementia. So that's where these things become relevant because, you know, we all want there to be less dementia. We want people not to die or suffer from cancer. Sometimes the solutions, well, often the solutions are at that tiny level. So if you take some of the bacteria or the other organisms that are in the microbiome, that we call it, and look at their characteristics and associate it with something else bad that's happening, you could conceivably use the genetic information that you got from the genome studies and change the genetics of the bacteria. So let's say this bacteria we find creates a protein that changes brain cells. You know, I'm just, I'm in theoreticalville here, um, and results in dementia. Well, if we could alter that bacteria that's in the mouth so it couldn't produce that protein, perhaps 
we would have less dementia. So that's where, you know, there's a lot of words that, as you said, Wayne, you know, are tough to understand. And this area had so many of them that I just really had to work hard to shy away from throwing them all out there. But it's because we're in a new field and you need to have specific definitions for different areas so they're not words we've seen before. As we talk about the future of dentistry with Dr. Bernice Shafarik from Shafarik Dental, what are some recent innovations and new directions in your field? So um, filling materials. You know, we went from um, amalgam to what we call composite resin, and that was great because they bonded to the teeth, they looked nicer, they matched the tooth better, so they were also biocompatible, like they didn't cause any harm to the patient or to the environment, the way we were using them. But what they aren't is what is called bio-inspired. So bio-inspired means along with just filling the hole, they actually can create a better environment. So they're what we call bioactive. So, for example... If we have a filling material that can not only fill the spot, but also creates minerals around to toughen up the tooth structure around it, and then what would really be wonderful, if it had something in there that prevented plaque, so plaque is that biofilm of bacteria that if it gets caught on the filling material, because the filling material is rougher than your natural tooth, then you can get decay again. So if we had something in our filling materials that could prevent plaque from forming, then we wouldn't have to be bugging people so much about brushing and flossing because the materials we use would actually create a better atmosphere. So an example that just comes to mind is if you go to the car wash and the wax or whatever they use to help protect your car, if it recreates itself every day so you don't have to keep going back, that would be more desirable than just going and waxing your car every week. Who's doing all this research? People in laboratories wearing white coats? So that is a big problem because there's not enough people with the white coats in the laboratories. Actually, today it's more about people sitting at a computer and analyzing data more than the white coats. But the white coat part of it is if they have enough information, for example, about the characteristics of the COVID virus, the characteristics of the people who get the COVID virus, I mean, that to me is a huge issue because I hear it every day that somebody in one family got COVID and maybe one other family member and then three family members didn't get it at all. So there's something that differentiates those people. So the data entry, if we had electronic records that could show us lots of characteristics about different people, then the scientists could analyze that and come up with some experiments. Well, what if we tried this and try that on an experimental group? The problem we're having in dentistry, for sure, is 
we don't have enough people going into research. And the reasons behind that are dental school has become incredibly expensive. And if you have all this debt from dental school and you become a researcher, you may not be paid enough to repay your debt. So that's why you'll see programs, for example, trying to do um, debt forgiveness potentially for people who go into research. So for the general public, it's nice to support a politician who recognizes the importance of that and supports that. We also, most of the research is funded by the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research, it's called. So that's the government body that helps fund a lot of the research. If there's no funds for research, then it's not going to happen, and we will continue to have the same medical dilemmas that that we've had for a long time. You touched on digital imaging earlier, but this segment we're talking about recent innovations, meaning in the past. So how has digital imaging improved over the years going forward? I'm sure it's going to get better. So the basic, the new directions are we already have some systems that you can shine a light on a tooth and see the difference between an area that might have bacteria eating away at the tooth and an adjacent area where that's not happening. We're not exact enough about that. We don't have reliable imaging yet to be able to detect that. So that area, you know, is huge. So if we had a way to, for example, image the bone, so we're going in that direction. You know, there are CT scans, but we really need to work at having very safe procedures that don't expose people to too much radiation compared to the benefit that they'll get from it. So all of the, you know, the the pictures that everybody takes with their cell phones shows us that, you know, you can take lots of images and that's not necessarily harmful. So if we could target them on a very small level, to be able to see things within the body, then we'd be able to do a better job fixing things early. And that's that's the whole end game. And taking a side trip to your other hat, which is the Seroptimus Club of Willimantic, how was your masquerade ball, spelled M-A-S-K? So it was uh, wonderfully successful. I think we raised over $13,000, which was great because... We did have people who were not able to attend because of COVID fears still and um, sometimes because they were ill. Um, So it was a Roaring Twenties event, and people had a wonderful time. They came in um, masked outfits, and they had their photos taken. So it was um, a a lot of fun, and we're very grateful to the community for helping us raise these funds because they'll go right back into our programs for women and girls. And speaking of programs for women and girls, one of our ongoing projects for a lot of years has been to create personal care bags for the domestic violence shelters. So when a woman leaves her home to try to get out of a violent situation, most times they leave with nothing. So we create bags that have a lot of personal care items 
that they can use while they're in the shelter. We also have a program where we create smaller bags for women who may be trafficked or living on the streets or homeless, and those need to be very small because, you know, they can't carry a lot of stuff with them and they don't really have a home to place them. So we are filling the bags on June 28th at the Lebanon Vineyard, and we'll be there from 5 to 7, so um, there will be information about that on our Facebook and website so that people can look for that if you want to come and help out. Getting out our dental crystal ball, looking at the future of dentistry and what's on the horizon. It gives me a chance to drop in the word that'll send you all scurrying to Google unless Bernice can answer what is pharmacotherapeutics. So basically, pharmacotherapeutics means the drugs we use as therapy for a condition. So it's some medication that we give to improve something that's happening in your body. All right, so I got a stat. I'm on Lipitor. Is that a pharmacotherapeutic? Yes, I, well, <laughs> if you're... I know you're not a cardiologist. I just dropped that one in because I'm on it. If you, we know that you have high cholesterol and that's improving your cholesterol levels, then that's a pharmacotherapeutic. If you're taking it because you've got a family history of heart disease and somebody decided that it would be a good preventive thing, then it's kind of a pharmacopreventive medication. Right, well, for me, it's the former on that, but how does it pertain to dentistry? So, for example, when um, some assault happens in your mouth, like some foreign substance, you know, an infection or whatever, your body reacts with an inflammatory reaction. So an acute, something that happens immediately, an acute inflammation is a very helpful thing because it helps isolate that thing that's causing a problem and helps your body get rid of it. So that's what our body says is, oh, there's something here. I'm sending all these cells over there to help solve this problem. Acute inflammation is very helpful. We now have a lot of diseases that involve chronic inflammation, and COVID has become one of those, or things like arthritis, for example. So you end up with a chronic inflammation, and that's not as helpful. So pharmacotherapeutics, if they could target the inflammatory cells, the factors, the things that are remaining chronic and disabled them with some medication or substance that we give, then that would really be a helpful thing. And what we found with pharmacotherapeutics is that we may be able to look at inflammation in saliva and help impact some other diseases. So things that get me very interested are the areas of research that have shown that there's some members of the oral microbiome, so all that those bacteria and organisms that are growing, that have been associated with different conditions like colorectal cancer or pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, 
rheumatoid arthritis. So if we could detect those chronic inflammatory cells in the saliva and could target a drug to disable them, to make them not as active, then we might be able to make a really striking impact on diseases that are really debilitating. So if you know people with arthritis, you know, it's just, it's constant pain. So anything that could help with that would be huge. What's the future in dentistry of creating new teeth and bone? So when I read the Surgeon General's report in 2000, I got really excited because it looked like we were really close to being able to grow new teeth. So what has happened is in some small animals and small mammals, they have been able to turn on the triggers to grow a tooth. But it kind of stopped there, and nothing has really happened since. We've had more success in helping bone to regrow if we're able to give it something to grow on. So if you think of like a scaffolding, if we put something in there, then the body says, oh, okay, I'll grow on that. But we haven't reached that point of being able to grow new teeth, which is disappointing, but it will happen at some point because we do have the availability of stem cells now that we can harvest from people's oral cavity and try to get those cells to recreate things like bone and gum tissue. What's the connection with systemic disease and inflammation? So we actually just talked about that with the arthritis and with other diseases. One that um, is probably diagnosed more often or recognized in a dental office than other places is Sjogren's syndrome because one of the problems with Sjogren's syndrome is you get a very dry mouth. So that becomes more obvious to us in dentistry. So any of those diseases that are causing chronic inflammation, if we can get evidence of that, find those cells in the person's saliva that have become chronic inflammatory cells, then we might be able to impact a lot more diseases than just the um, what's going on in your mouth. So as we've gotten pretty detailed into the future of dentistry, when you look backwards into the big picture, what conclusions do we reach? Well, one thing is there's a huge need for joint effort, and I think that, again, during COVID, the fact that there was a scientist in China who was able to get information to scientists in Australia about the genetic code of the virus is what helped the whole world be able to come up with vaccines and medications to help fight that disease. So joint effort is hugely important, and as we've seen, politics often interferes with that. The other thing that we have to be super conscious of is ethical and privacy concerns. So for the good of a lot of people, The more data we can look at, 
but that data for the electronic health records has to be protected to a certain extent, but on the other hand, we need to have the data. So a lot of the research has been done on, you know, European-descended populations. So we don't have as much research that involves different races and ethnicities, and we have to get past, you know, worrying about targeting people and getting useful information because genetics definitely plays a role, but the environment also does. So if we know somebody who has the genetic potential to have a problem, if we can help change their environment, we could make a huge difference for everybody. And those are things, one example is fluoride in the water. That was a huge advance in decreasing decay in poor populations who really didn't have access to dental care. And it didn't get rid of it completely because no matter how much fluoride you have, if you're eating sugar all day long or using methamphetamines or drinking soda or smoking, you know, those things will impact. But knowledge will help us to help people. So then the other problem with my conclusions is implementation. Going from what we find out in research to actually being able to do it in our office is problematic because most of the preventive-oriented things that I do, I don't really get paid for. You know, there's no code. The insurance company wants to cover procedures, and that's the model that we have. So there's a lot of work that has to be done on trying to get reimbursement for the things that are most cost-effective and useful but are not being utilized as much as they could because, you know, nobody can work for free. You know, you have to be paid for the services that you're providing and if they're not covered. So joint effort, insurance companies, people gathering the data, practitioners, the clinicians who actually have to do these things on patients and identify them, we all need to really work together. A look into the future of dentistry and what's on the horizon from the good Dr. Bernice Shafarik from Shafarik Dental, Route 66 East in Columbia. Thank you for joining me this morning, Bernice. You're welcome.